Okay, well, good afternoon or good evening, depending upon where you are. Um, my name is Patrick from the Poison Pen Bookstore in Scottsdale, Arizona. And Barbara and I are going to be hosting two of our absolute favorite writers uh, tonight. Um, the occasion is to celebrate uh, the publication of Kathleen Kent's brand new book, Black Wolf. Remarkable book. Uh, can't wait to get into it. Uh, Kathleen, as always, was kind enough to sign a bunch of them for us. So I'll put a link in the comments field if you'd like to, to purchase one of the few remaining ones we have. Um, and we also have, I think, three signed copies left of Dan Festerman's most recent book, Winter Work. And um, I must say, they make a nice companion set, don't they? I mean, they do. Aesthetically. Mm. So um, welcome, both of you. Uh, and thanks so much, Dan, for agreeing to, to, uh, to do the interview. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. And thank you, Barbara. And thanks for the poison pen, as always. So. Yeah. Barbara, any, anything you'd like, like to add? We're, we're both going to lurk, I think, because we both loved this <laughs> okay. so much. We'll probably pitch in with some questions. I probably should do some kind of a formal introduction for Kathleen, just for just for yucks. Um, and so I've gone to her website, which any of you, of course, can't naturally do, but here we are. Anyway, she uh, grew up in Texas, but lived in New York for 20 years, began writing full-time, and in 2008 published her first novel, The Heretic's Daughter, down its 12th printing, published in 17 countries. Then she wrote more historical fiction, The Traitor's Wife and The Outcast, and she loves historical fiction. Um, Patrick, I think, did you get to know her with the dime, Patrick? Was that the book that I think it was? And The Burn, which That's was right. nominated for an Edgar, the Sue Grafton Memorial Award for a strong female protagonist. Then she wrote The Pledge, published in 2021. And now here we are with Black Wolf which is a great spy thriller. Patrick was inspired to um, suggest that fans of Dan Fesperman would really like Black Wolf. Yeah. I'm going to throw in a pitch for Alma Katsu because her upcoming yeah. book, Red London, and her previous book in this particular line, because she writes different things called Red Widow, um, is amazing. And Alma was actually worked for the CIA. <laughs> so she has some... She has some strong back, and she will be with us on March 12th. So it's really fun to, you know, to have a kind of cluster. Um, and I think another really fascinating thing, since I am old enough to have lived through the entire cycle, is that we're back in the Cold War. We are back where Russia is really um, right. our principal antagonist, um, again, in spy thrillers, um, having... You know, we cycled through the sandbox, we've cycled through China and Korea and all, but Russia is like the target, which in many ways is difficult for you guys writing unless you're writing historical because you have to keep up with what's actually happening in Russia and Ukraine. But fortunately, that doesn't come in. Dan, Dan has written his marvelous series, well, not series, but actually a whole bunch of books, all the way from... Um, what was the first book? What, I'm trying to remember. Uh, uh, Lie in the Dark, uh, set in Bosnia, but during Bosnia, the Thank you. I was going back on Black on Bosnia, but we've yeah. been all around the world with you. Although I don't recall that you've done a book in Asia. Have you had an Asian background? Uh, no, unless you, well, you can count Pakistan there. A lot of uh, my book in Pakistan and Afghanistan, uh, The Warlord's Son. Was, well, I was thinking Southeast Asia. Maybe. Yeah, right. No, China. not that far. Not that far east. Anyway, Eurocentric, um, yeah. so we'll see. And anyway, um, Dan and Kathleen, I'm going to turn it over to you, but I wanted to kind of give readers a flavor of what we're going to be talking about. All right. Great. Thanks a lot, Barbara. Yeah. So Kathleen, I want to know, uh, first of all, you, 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 were, you lived a lot of these events, or at least some, you were living in this period and traveling there as a Department of Defense contractor. Uh, you, like some of the characters in this book, were concerned with stopping maybe some of the dangerous nuclear proliferation with all of these nukes suddenly possibly up for grabs. As the And this book is set in Belarusia, which at the time was a republic of the USSR, the Soviet Union. Right. And the Berlin Wall had fallen eight months or so before, but the Soviet Union hadn't yet crumbled, or not officially anyway, but there were certainly cracks in the foundation. And tell us about what you share with your main character, the fascinating Melvina Donlevy, 
And tell us about some of your experiences and how that brought this novel about. Right. Well, like Barbara, I'm old enough to, uh, to be a part of the duck and cover uh, generation. Same here. Yeah. yeah. I remember uh, in grade school, we had drills where we would hide underneath our desks as though that would protect us from a nuclear attack from Russia. Yeah. But I grew up, Russia was the evil empire. It was our number one threat to our uh, security, national security. And so... Um, there was always this, this shadowy background, you know, remembering the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, I was very fortunate uh, in 1990 to have been working for a U.S. company that had already made inroads into Belarus. As, as you said, Dan, um, 1990, a few months after the fall of the Berlin War, a lot of the republics had announced their sovereignty, but not quite yet their independence. That would come a right. year or so so later. Right. So it was this very fluid, chaotic, yeah. um, dangerous time uh, because the, the U.S. government, the State Department, became aware of the fact that the Soviet, the crumbling Soviet Union had 27,000 nuclear missiles and un, uh, uncounted tons of biological weapons and chemical weapons. And so fortunately, there were few lawmakers, uh, Sam Nunn being the driver of this, Senator Sam Nunn, uh, went to Moscow and asked uh, Mikhail Gorbachev soon after he had been reinstated after the populist uprising. And he said, what's being, I mean, who's guarding, who's guarding the vault? Who, who's guarding the weapons? And he said, let's change the subject because yeah. he knew that um, the silos were unmanned. Some of these biological and chemical weapons were being kept in facilities that were locked simply with a padlock. So it was with hair-raising alarm that the U.S. government started the Nunn-Lugar Cooperative Threat Reduction Program. And so I was one of the early, my company and I were one of the early project managers that were under the auspices, the umbrella of the Department of Defense. And I like to say I wasn't CIA, but I was CIA adjacent because yeah. I had to report to, to the NSA and the CIA because... Um, Countries such as Iran and Pakistan were very interested in taking advantage of, of the chaos. And they, they, they had ready uh, cash to spend, to beg, borrow, or steal fissionable material or, or the weapons themselves. So, um, so, I, so in 1990, I, I became a contractor and it was a very unique opportunity to see um, it was still in flux between the old guard, Soviet Union, you know, the KGB was still very active. Um, Afghanistan had really broken the back of the Soviet system and the civilians were paying mightily for, for the depredations of, of war. Um, so, and yet there was this, almost this giddy hope that they would become partners to the West. And, the, and there were glimmers, there were, there were, you know, entrees into Western commerce um, and, and Western organizations. So, so it, it was a very hopeful time. It was very scary because, you know, we didn't know where it was going to go. But that's, um, but that's how I, I had a unique perspective in that I spent 10 years in and out of Belarus and Kazakhstan and was yeah. able to see a lot of these changes. Yeah, yeah. Now, it, it, it was also, it made it very interesting. Instead of, we're familiar with the Cold War from a lot of classic spy novels and the rules of engagement were pretty standard and set. But what made this period interesting was that all those rules were suddenly in flux, loyalties were in question. As you yeah. said, there was some hope, maybe they would form a friendship even with the West. And so even a KGB officer like the Black Wolf in, in this novel is, is starting to rethink his own future. And, and that, that, tell me how like, that comes into play with several of your characters really looking to, to the future and wondering what it might hold for them in this uncertain new reality. 
exactly. One of the things I loved about Winter Work Dam was that, first of all, our two books are set very close together. Yeah. Yours starts at the beginning of 1990 and mine's sort of yeah. at the end of the summer of 1990. And your main character, Emil Grimm, Emil Grimm finds himself in that same position of being a part of the Stasi, being a part of the old guard, yeah. and yet trying to find his balance yeah. on the shifting sands of, of change. Yeah. Um, and I always think that transitional times like that are mm -hmm. really interesting yeah. to write about yeah. because it brings out the best and worst in humanity, but right. the uncertainty causes this, this tension through, throughout the story. Um, when, when, we, when I started traveling to Belarus, um, all of our drivers, all of our uh, translators, all of our guides were KGB. We knew this. All of our phone calls were tapped. We had two-way mirrors in our hotel room. Yeah. And it was just sort of, you know, kind of a gentleman's agreement, sort of that I watch you, you watch me. And so we knew that. Um, but there was a there was definitely a, a kind of a relaxing, they didn't really trust us, we didn't really trust them, but there were openings for um, for a little more relaxed company. We, we went out to dinner with them, we went to their homes. Um, I never was inside the men's KGB building, but uh, I had dinner with a lot of their, the officers. And um, some of the best jokes uh, that I heard were from KGB officers. And, and yeah. one of them was the first time I was in Minsk, um, we were driving in from Minsk to airport, which was, which was a horror show. Outside, it looked very yeah. modern and sleek, but inside, you know, no light bulbs, dangling wires. It was, it was a nightmare. But as we're driving into uh, the main part of the city, um, because so much of Minsk had been destroyed during the Second World War, the Russians used German prisoners of war to rebuild the city. And so it looked very Germanic and all of the, especially the municipal buildings were four stories high. And so as we're passing the KGB building, which is four stories, our driver said, oh, this is the KGB building. It's the tallest building in Minsk. And I said, but it's, it's only four stories like every other building. And he says, ah, but from the top floor, you can see all the way to Siberia. <laughs> so, there was this, so there was this sense of, you know, being able to, you know, to to find humor, it yeah. was dark humor. Yeah, yeah. But but there were little glimmers of 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 humanity and hopefulness. Uh, the biggest, I think, the the biggest worry that the Soviets had at that time is who's going to pay them. Yeah. You know, they, the infrastructure had fallen apart. Their military, their scientists, their academicians were not being paid, and that's where you know, US dollars like, um, not unlike the Marshall Plan, yeah. stepped in and invested money in our former enemies to, as, as, a, as a firewall against future aggression. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. You also uh, did a good job of capturing, uh, well, a couple things in particular. One, the appalling nature of the food in those places at that time. I traveled <laughs> some in Ukraine and in Moscow at that time, and, and it was just, it was terrible everywhere you went, unless you had a home-cooked meal. But, um, exactly. and also how the culture, culturally, socially, everything floated on a sea of vodka. Um <laughs> You know, oh, yeah. you could not do anything without knocking back shots, uh, whether it was a formal lunch, whether it was a party, a dinner. Vodka was just, that was part of the conversation and you had to keep up. That's right. It was ubiquitous. And um, one of the amazing things that I discovered was that during the early 90s, when, when inflation was rampant, they kept the price of vodka low. Because yeah. if they hadn't, they would have had a populist uprising of a different kind. And um, all of the vodka bottles had foil tops. Yeah. Because once you open the bottle. Oh, yeah. That was it. Yeah. And, you weren't supposed and, to open it unless you were going to finish it. it was, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so they, you know, it, in all of the, um, the social functions that went to the State Department or with the, the Soviet higher ups, we were expected to drink. And, and the tradition was that you stand up, you make a toast and then you knock it back. And then if there are 20 people in the room, you're gonna have 20 speeches. Yeah. I'm not the biggest drinker. So <laughs> I, 
But I had a, a colleague that traveled with me quite often and he was able to kind of sneak, he did kind of sleight of hand and yeah. slide a, a little glass of water. And so the Russians were thinking, this American woman, she's, you know, she can now drink. She can us. really knock them down, yeah. I'm down because I was drinking water. So yeah. it was uh, that that was a cultural, yeah, that was a cultural must that that was uh, that was very unique to the Soviet yeah. system. Yeah, yeah. Now you've done something very deft here in that you've combined a really top-notch espionage novel with also a novel about a serial killer who's sort of entwined into the social and uh, political fabric. Uh, we don't know his identity, but uh, he's, he's obviously someone who's in thick with a lot of people who are figuring into the book. Now, did it, did that, is that what you set out to do initially? At what point did it occur to you that you're going to have those two threads and how did you begin to, because that's, it's tough weaving them together, but you did a great job. But so uh, how did that, how did that evolve into those? Two? Um, in November of 1990, I was aware, it was publicized, that a man named Andrei Chikatilo, yeah. the butcher of Rostov, was arrested yeah. after 20 plus years of murdering probably at least 100 women and children across Ukraine and Russia. Yeah. Uh, he was allowed or, or he, he was able to, uh, to continue his murder spree because, the, uh, because it was anti-Soviet uh, policy to believe yeah. in serial killers outside of the decadent West. Right. So Stalin said, "There's no murder in paradise." Yeah, which is ironic coming from from Stalin. Not since he killed twenty million or so, but yeah. exactly. Um, so it so they were arresting people, but but unrelated to the actual murders. And there was a police officer, a detective, who believed that it was a serial killer, but it wasn't until after the, the Berlin Wall came down and he was allowed to contact the FBI yeah. and talk to them about their profiling methods um, that he was able to uh, bring in a, psychi a psychiatrist and they caught him. They, they caught Andre Chikatilo. And that, um, that whole story really stayed with me, not only the brutality of it, but trying to understand, you know, some people are just born psychopaths. They're born yeah. without empathy, without any conscience at all. But to me, there was an ele element in studying Chikatilo's life yeah. of, of the brutality of his earlier years, that Russia lost more people in the Second World War than any other country yeah. practically combined. I think they lost almost half of their civilian population. Yeah. Incredible privation incredible brutality, and it had to have had an effect. And so uh, the Butcher of Rostov is my model for, um, for the Svishloch Strangler in Black Wolf, yeah. but I wanted to explore, not to excuse, but to explore his path from being a young, young a, ch a child to being uh, a murderous uh, individual. So, so that was that was my model using Chikatilo yeah. was that and it just that story never left me. There's a brilliant movie, uh, uh, Citizen uh, Citizen X, mm -hmm. with Donald Sutherland, Stephen Ray, and Max von Sydow that that does a really good job of chronicling that hunt for him. I think I think they did a, a really terrific job of capturing that. So I just you know it was something I filed in the back of my mind. And, um, you know, and it was challenging because a spy novel has got to be, it's got to be believable and multi-layered. Yeah. But I thought, why not up the empty? I, I can play four-dimensional chess. <laughs> yeah, well, also, and, and you did a nice job using the Black Wolf, the, the, the KGB character at the top of the food chain and, and Belarus and, and, and Minsk. And he realizes that there is, as you were just talking about, there is this ideological blind spot in dealing with killers like this because they refuse to believe they exist. And he's, even though he's a very adept investigator and at ferreting out the truth, whether uh, through brutality or other means, he is kind of not very well armed for catching this killer, so. Right, that's, you know, uh, 
Martin Kavalchuk, who's who is the Black Wolf, the yeah. head of the Belgian yeah. KGB, is is very uh, he's intelligent, he's cunning, he's brutal, yeah. and yet he's a realist, he's a pragmatist, yeah. and I think yeah. he realizes that there are changes uh, going on societally. Yeah. But first and foremost, he is a he's a he's a he's a patriot. You know, yeah. his country first above above everything. And I kind of, you know, one of the iconic relationships in crime fiction or horror fiction is the relationship between Hannibal Lecter and Clarice Starling. Yeah. She's young, she's inexperienced, she's given an opportunity by her higher ups to try to, uh, you know, to form a relationship with this, with this man. He, and Hannibal Lecter never changes, you know, Leopard doesn't change his spots. And yet he recognizes her courage and her tenacity. And so there's a, there's kind of a respectful bond there. And, and so I, I kind of wanted to pay homage to that, even though Melvina is very different from, from uh, Starling, you know, I, um, I recently wrote an essay for Crime Reads uh, called The Only Woman in the Room. And um, I had spent 10 years with the Commodity Exchange, very few women, almost no yeah. women uh, working at the Commodity Exchange. And then 10 years as a civilian contractor, whereas everyone from the DOD and certainly my Soviet colleagues, it was all men. Um, but my father, I had a really, uh, I was very fortunate in that my father growing up I went hunting with him. He was, you know, he treated me just the same as he did, you know, his sons. But he told me once, he said, uh, there's nothing you can't do that a man can do except lie with a straight face. Yeah. But of course, once you start working with the intelligence, you know that that's yeah. not necessarily yeah, true, yeah. Yeah. that you have to keep a poker face uh, and misdirect or mislead. Um, but I, But I felt... You know, I wanted to give, uh, you know, to to highlight a woman who succeeds in a man's world yeah, through, yeah. through intelligence and and bravery. And let's talk about Melvina. Melvina Donlevy. She's your main character, and she's working with the CIA. And her special talent is that she's a super recognizer. Uh, right. Which which means that. A super recognizer uh, was actually not coined to the mid 2000s, but it's um, oh, okay. It's a real phenomenon. I had in in searching for building Melvina's character, yeah. I, I wanted something very unique about her that 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 was kind of a hook. Um, and I read an article um, in a British paper about a woman named Kelly Hersey, mm-hmm. who was hired by the local police constabulary because she was able to pick out, she was given a, um, a pre-selected target and picked out hooligans, you know, sports hooligans yeah. from, from thousands of people streaming into a stadium. Her hit rate was close to 100%. Wow. So she was, she was shown a picture and she was shown a video and she'd be able to say, there, there, and there are your hooligans. The uh, Scotland Yard caught wind of this, and she was uh, hired by Scotland Yard, and they upped the ante because instead of hooligans, she started uh, pinpointing bank robbers and terrorists and and really bad actors. Yeah. Her hit rate again is close to 100%, and she is a super, super recognizer, and it's so rare that less than 1% of the world's population has this innate ability. It's, it's not something that you can that you can uh, adopt or perfect, you know, they're they're little mind tricks to improve our memory, but this is something hardwired into some people. So I, so I thought, well, this is really cool. I, you know, I, I thought this would be a great attribute to give to Melvina. And like Kelly Hersey, she first starts with the FBI and then the CIA gets wind of it. And she's given top secret clearance to, uh, recognize three Iranian scientists who are in Belarus to gain access to nuclear weapons. Yeah. So yeah. that's her job. Another character who really was, was fascinating. And then I read at, at, at the end that um, it was based on someone you knew and that's William Cutler. 
Uh, he was kind of straddling all the worlds. He was an American, but basically born in that part of the world, um, but an right. American citizen and living there. And he had his fingers into every pie in town. And he was somewhat mistrusted by everybody, but he was also somewhat trusted by everybody. So he made a great intermediary. And and he was based on someone you knew, apparently. Yes. William Cutler was based uh, on one of my colleagues and partners in the American company that traveled to the former Soviet Union. His name was William Bagell. And like I, I write about William Cutler, William Bagell spoke seven languages. Um, he was born in Vilnius. He lost 14 members of his family to the Holocaust. No. He was a brilliant nuclear physicist. He was, uh, he was a, a wonderful uh, pianist. Uh, and he looked like Santa Claus. You know, he was the, huh. the least, and he got away with a lot in terms of subterfuge and in terms of misdirection, because he looked, he you know, the twinkling blue eyes and the and the, yeah. you know, the rosy cheeks. Uh, but he was intensely um, intelligent, ferociously so, and he sort of became my protector in a way yeah. uh, when when I traveled to Belarus. I I traveled with him quite a bit. And um, I always felt, you know, kind of <clears throat> protected and looked after. Uh, and he was always giving me sort of the inside, you know, he could look at somebody and say, oh, that's KGB or yeah. that's, you know. Um, so I wanted to pay homage uh, to William Bigel. He died about six or seven years ago. Um, and he's, he was greatly missed. So I wanted to, I wanted to pay tribute to him. And I thought, what a great, you know, what a great representative, representative character uh, that William Cutler is sort of a go-between between the CIA, uh, but he also has contacts with the Mossad, with yeah. Israeli intelligence. Yeah. He has yeah. contacts with the scientific community. And he plays this very delicate balance between giving the Soviets, because he's living in Belarus, giving the Soviets just enough to keep them interested but not giving them everything to gain an advantage over yeah. the Americans. Yeah. So I just uh, I just had a lot of fun building that yeah. character. No, he's a great character. Um, the um, uh, talk about your research because you lived in this period and you traveled there and you had some no doubt shared experiences with Melvina, but. Um, how did you refresh your memories on that? How did you make these live again for you? Did you keep notebooks or did you just, did you travel back to any of these places? How do you, how do you bring all that back? Because for me as a journalist, I was in Berlin in some of these times and in the East Block and I would just take out my old notebooks and you know, one line and I can remember how it looked, smelled, sounded, but I was just wondering how you, how you go about that. Well, <clears throat> I kept a journal, which I wasn't supposed oh, to good. keep because we were in a lot of very sensitive places. One of my advantages was I, uh, I'm old enough to know Greg Shorthand. I'd studied mm -hmm. Greg Shorthand. And so nobody, not even the Americans could read. And I take notes uh, that I didn't want other people to read in, in Greg Shorthand. So I kept the notebook. And fortunately, you know, I, um, I think, you know, by the time I had retired as a civilian contractor and moved to Texas in 2000, the spy novel, the classic Jean Le Carré spy novel of the mm -hmm. Russians had sort of passed into uh, irrelevance in a way yeah. because yeah. Russia wasn't the evil empire anymore. They were seen as right. potential allies. And so I thought, well, I don't know if this would be, even be interested, interesting to, to people because yeah. a lot of the spy and thriller novels moved to the Middle East, yeah. you know, we, our, our focus shifted. Yeah. But a few years ago, because of Putin's interest in the Crimea and his insatiable um, um, desire to, to conquer territory, I pulled out the, the journal and I thought, you know, this may be relevant again. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we had one of my biggest concerns in Belarus was really not the KGB, but the fact that Chernobyl, which had happened in 1986, irradiated over 80% of yeah. Belarus. 
Yeah. So when we were initially shown the maps, the, the, the Russian made maps, it looked like, you know, it was just the exclusion zone. It was just 20% of the country. Yeah. After being in country for a while, the State Department gave us the real maps, which was 80%. So everything that we ate, everything that we, you know, even the air yeah. that we breathed um, was potentially toxic. Um, cancer rates skyrocketed, infant mortality rates yeah. grew exponentially. So there was this, this feeling, um, this dark cloud of what was going to happen, not, you know, a year from now, but 10 years from now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, that fear never completely went away. Yeah. Um, but um, when, so I sent in the finished manuscript to the publisher a week before Putin uh, invaded Ukraine. Yeah. And I think it is the 23rd, is it not? Yeah, that's the anniversary. So yeah. Exactly a year out yeah. from the yeah. invasion. And one of the first things he did was send troops into Chernobyl. And this was such a horrible deja vu because, yeah. you know, it had slept peacefully under its concrete, you know, in its concrete coffin. And I thought, well, that's one thing we're not going to have to worry about again. Yeah. But um, there, there were great concerns that it would have another nuclear event. Then he withdraws a thousand troops back through the exclusion zone with no protective gear. Right, and they were digging around in the soil. and yeah, yeah. Digging around in the soil. So there's a good chance that there are going to be a thousand Russians, if they've survived yeah. the fighting, yeah. are going to be, um, are going to have consequences to this. Yeah, yeah. So it was just, it was really a horrible deja vu that I didn't, I don't know if I consciously knew when I was writing the book that it was going to be as, as aggressively, um, as aggressive as he turned out to be, but I had a sense that, that there were going to be problems with Russia. And, yeah. and unfortunately, like Barbara said, we've come yeah. full circle again. Uh, yeah. Problems with radiation, problems with Putin. Uh, you know, it's pretty, um, it's, it was pretty scary. Yeah, I, it brings a couple of things to mind. I remember when, when I was writing Winterwork, I thought, well, some of the villains in it are, are Russian. And I thought, well, is this going to be passe? And I even had a throwaway reference to Putin because he was a KGB officer in Dresden right. at the time the right. wall came down and that, was appalled yeah. by what they let happen. And, right. and, but I also remember when I was traveling, even in traveling in Poland at that time, you would see a, in rural Poland a certain time of year, you'd see mushroom salesmen by the side of the road everywhere right. out of the forest. And I remember being cautioned. It's like uh, a lot of that dirt, even in Poland, got radioactive fallout and the last thing right. you want to be eating is a mushroom so it's, right and, and that's one of the that's one of the greatest traditions of the russian people are to yeah. go mushroom yeah, i mean they yeah. make entire you know fets and 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 festivals out of it but uh by the very nature of its construction it absorbs radiation yeah, yeah so exactly but when, when we were there you'd have to test it for radiation yeah. and most of them were irradiated so yeah. um were so you carrying the, a, a dosimeter around there oh yes oh yeah, yeah. we had pocket dosimeters uh yeah. the whole the whole time that that we were there okay um and and there were there were elevated where we were we, i wasn't in ukraine and we were north of the exclusion zone right but there were elevated exposures to to radiation and and you know we were assured that it wasn't any more than an x-ray but if but if you're getting x-rays worth of radiation every week and I've, I'm in and yeah. out of country in 10 years, that, yeah. it caused some concern. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm sure. But, um, but it was just, you know, it was sort of, uh, it, was, it was such a fascinating time. And I, I always felt very fortunate to be witness to, to that. Um, that we were doing something, we were turning swords to plowshares. And I was also in a place that was totally exotic to me. You yeah. know, it was, um, uh, it was just, it was a fascinating place. Tell me about the worst food you had during that time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, um, you know, unless you were invited to someone's dasha or they had just returned from their dasha where they could during the summer or early fall when they dug up their vegetables, it was mostly canned or root vegetables. Everything was, you know, 
meat that was that was fried, a lot yeah, of potatoes, a lot of grease, yeah. a lot of, grease, a lot of yeah. potatoes, a lot of heavy cream, a lot of mushrooms. Yeah. Um, one of the characters in Black Wolf, uh, one of the C young CIA agents, is is a man named Benjamin Worthington Worthingham Franklin, and mm -hmm. he's an African American yeah, yeah. man, and he's based on a real CIA agent that traveled with us. He was from the State Department, and I felt so sorry for him because he was a vegetarian first of all. Yeah, yeah. I almost starved to death. Yeah, we were yeah. there in November. He was wearing a kind of a light trench coat, almost froze to death. Um, yeah. And I never understood. He was he was very very intelligent. He did speak Russian, but the Russians' response to him was as though he was an alien. You know yes. that it, um, you know, and why they sent someone to do a clandestine job that was going to be, you know, that was going to stand out as though he glowed from the inside out so um but we formed a friendship and he was he was very he was a lovely a lovely guy and so i kind of i put his character into one of the fictional characters in the book it's interesting it reminded me his experiences reminded me uh the time i was in moscow with some co-workers and uh, a couple of them were african-american and we our host put us up with locals in moscow who had really had nothing to do with our host or with us. So they had kind of signed up to host these American journalists. And I remember uh, I was at an apartment with a guy, the, our host was named Anatoly Smirnoff and he was a heavy, <laughs> heavy drinker. And he right. got all of us. To, and of course, Anatoly comes in late at night when we were trying to get to sleep. And he went up to my friends, Jerry and Bob, both African-American. And he was basically staring at them as they lay in bed, he was staring at their faces as if they had no consciousness of this from about a foot away. And we were, he didn't speak English. We were talking to each other. And I remember, you know, Jerry saying something like, I'm going to F him up, you know, or something like that. Cause he was like, what is this guy doing? You know? And it was the most bizarre thing. It was like you said, it was, they were treated as exotic animals. They just had no experience with people of color. It was, bizarre thing everywhere we went that happened so there's such a wide cultural divide um and it's the, the, some things were overt and some things were more nuanced for example yeah. when we when we would go into these military facilities to, to uh to start the deconstruction or the retooling for civilian use they yeah. had no comparative word in russian for quality control yeah 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 to them you know right. it was uh if you got an order to make 100 widgets you made 100 widgets you'd send them out and then 20 were defective they'd be sent back yeah and then they would be included in the next shipment yeah you know yeah. it because you had to meet your quota it wasn't yeah. it wasn't quality it was quantity and and so there were you know they had lived under Stalin for three or four generations um and it was you know it was an autocratic system and before that had been the czar and they'd lived yeah. as serfs and so it was very it, it was a huge cognitive leap for the soviet citizens to suddenly try to uh to embrace the idea of autonomy or democracy in any way shape or form and in a way even though the free marketplace uh, and and the mafia and the black market ran rampant and has run rampant for the last 20 years, um, there is something I think innate in in the Soviet mindset that is embracing Putin's strongman stance. Yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, uh, I think it's a, a lot of the young people who've traveled more and have been exposed more to, to certain freedoms are not on board with Putin, but the middle-aged to the older people are really falling in line. They, they're comfortable with, with, an, uh, with an autocracy. And yeah. so I don't, think they, I don't think there was ever a complete shift. And so yeah. they're you now slide back. And so what, what's gonna happen from now on, I, I, I'm not sure. I think it's, uh, uh, you know, the 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 uh, physicist Niels Bohr said mm -hmm. 
predictions are difficult, especially about the future. <laughs> you know, yeah. so, yeah. you know I, just, I, I mean, I've talked to so many different people who've had, um, you know, from, from the military to intelligence, and it's sort of, you know, no one is really quite sure what's, yeah. you know, what's, what's going to happen. Listen, and, I'm going yeah. to speak up for a minute, yeah. guys, because last night I had a really interesting conversation we were doing, basically, military fiction, but two of the guys, um, they, they were all former military uh, that are now authors. And one of them said, and I think he's right, that the Russians don't understand a win-win mentality, that they are not interested in win-win. What they basically are interested in is us losing, yeah. not them winning. And yeah. for That's, them, even if they lose, if they made us lose, it's yeah. a win. And so, yeah. you know, there's, um, it's a it's a completely different way of, of approaching things. And as a result, he, he felt that we often miss the point or that we yeah. don't really understand that the Russian goal is not, is not our goal um, at all. It is not definitely a win-win. And that's why I think any thought of a negotiation, I mean, you know, I'm not quite old enough to remember Munich and Chamberlain. I would have been minus two. But yeah. you know, anyone who thinks that um, that a negotiated peace that Putin would yeah. sell there right. is, right. Little, you know, just, I mean, there is no way. He has turned into Alexander, Napoleon, all of these guys that yeah. have this drive for conquest. Also, it's his only survival thing. But here's what I think, and I, I pointed this out last night. I think we need to be watching the Wagner group and the guy yeah. being Wagner. I think he's plotting a coup. I well, would be at all surprised if he does not do that, but he may be actually worse than Putin. So well, you know, we're not necessarily going to be liberated from all this if somebody removes Putin from office, because you've just pointed out there are too many people who yeah. are comfortable with this. And when I was in Russia in 2011, I can remember some of the older people actually missing the Soviet era because they, it was structured and they knew what was going on and they are uncomfortable with freedom. They are uncomfortable with decision-making and driving their own lives because they lived in an autocracy forever. Right. They just right. don't know what to do. Um, and and, I, I worry that China is in the same position. They haven't had any you know, particular freedom since Mao, although they had this brief window of it and right. now it's closed again. And I don't know, you know, we should remember that people used to autocracy are not going to move seamlessly into democracy. They're just not going to do it. You know, that's so true. And, and, and I've read, and I don't know if it was General Petraeus, what, some general, American general, said that the American military is wonderful at going in and knocking down a strongman or, or uh, uh, you know, knocking down an institution, a corrupt institution, but we are terrible at rebuilding, yeah. right? So it's sort of once once we've taken out the Shah or, wh or whoever our, our appointed enemy is, there, there's no, we haven't found an effective way to rebuild uh, a functioning uh, society with, with functioning infrastructure. And I, and I think a, a major part of that is a psychological disconnect from from what we know and understand and take for granted and what and what say the former soviets have taken uh for granted because even though there have been shortages of food that there was a consistency to the shortages you know they they knew um like you said there there was structure to it and i think uh, you know putin has is a very prideful man. And I think he felt that he was shunned by the West. He wasn't given his due. And I think he's had plans for a very long time to take back the country. It's already been announced that he wants to uh, absorb Belarus into the Russian Republic. Lukashenko has been president for life since 1992. And uh, I don't think Belarus, uh, I don't think Lukashenko is going to have any problem with that. Um, so as long as he gets to keep doing, isn't it interesting that Putin is another small man? I just, you know, you have to, <laughs> think, I'm serious, you know, I mean, I think there's, yeah. there's something in that, you know, yeah. whatever these yeah. guys, 
they were yeah. a little bit, you know, there's an interesting analogy to the, the I'm trying to remember the full name of the project um, in Chicago, the something green, Cabrini Green. That was a Cabrini Green project. Because when there was that great migration of African-Americans from the South that came up to Detroit and Chicago with the war and so forth. And so they built all these high-rise apartment buildings for them to live in. But nobody thought to tell them how you actually lived in them. And it was astonishingly short time before they broke the plumbing, um, before you know they completely trashed them because nobody had educated them in living in a high-rise structure, in a community structure with indoor plumbing. And you know, it turned into a disaster. And you know, there's an awful assumption by people who operate in one plane that that given a chance, other people will do the same. But if you yeah. don't train them in how to do it, they should have had like laboratory classes, you know, for, for people moving into the building. This is how it actually works. Well, you had a lot of agrarian people moving into the city, you know, uh, moving from, from being essentially farmers and living off the land to living in, in the concrete jungle. And it, and it was a huge... Uh, it was a huge shift, and I think very quickly a sense of malaise and hopelessness settled in because, as you said, there it was not there wasn't any context for it. You right. know, it, it was they, they had moved away from uh, from traditions and a life that they had known, and they were put into these big, tall, you know, soulless brick buildings and. Um, yeah, it, it, there is a context and there is a, a period of transition between living one way and, and living another, you know, transitioning into another way of life. And that takes generations sometimes. Yeah, to, and, and you're yeah. talking about the, the, the strongman mentality in Russia. I mean, that was a, true in a lot of the East Bloc. Uh, I remember when and the former Yugoslavia when Milosevic was running for office. And there were all these uh, upstart characters and reformists who ran against him. And one of them was out campaigning and uh, he gave a speech to a group of people and someone came up to him afterwards and he says, I agree with everything you said and I think you're great. And he says, so you're going to vote for me? He goes, no, 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 no. But if you show me you can take power too, then then I'll vote for you. And it was basically, no, that's not how this works. But right. he right. wanted to see if this guy was strong enough to take power, then he would vote for him. But he just couldn't get the idea that, no, it was up to you and all your neighbors. So he wasn't going to vote for him because he had not demonstrated enough strength. Well, it, here's, it, here's it's a question, a Dan. When thing. we went to Vietnam, what did we think we were going to do with it if we won? Well, we it, it's, it's like we it's like Kathleen said. It's like Kathleen said. We're not very good at. Uh, I think Americans, uh, whether in the State Department or other places, tended to have this naive idea throughout the Cold War that if we could depose communism, if we could depose a despot who wasn't letting American business do what they wanted to do, uh, then maybe. Uh, by imposing the American way in terms of commerce and businesses it will somehow evolve into also the American way and other fields. But people, if you, if you don't have experience with democracy, with elected governments, then you're going to revert to what has been the norm, whether it's under communist rule or under fascist rule or, or, or whatever. So it, it's, I, I think Americans have always thought, and look at what happened in Iraq. We thought, well, we'll uh, implant a few leaders and prop them up and then we'll have elections. And it's just, it's not that easy. You just can't grow a culture like that uh, by giving people a few tips and uh, propping up a few people who you like. So, right. you know, so Dan, I, re I remembered reading a journalist years ago who'd been in Vietnam. Yeah. And they had asked uh, some Vietnamese pe peasants what they thought democracy was. Yeah. And they thought it was a kind of rice. Yeah. No, when, you know, when you're living a subsistence existence and yeah. your only thought is to how you're going to feed your family in your next yeah. meal, democracy is a is a is a very uh, esoteric concept. Now, now the American, the CIA early on, uh, uh, or OSS actually, they sent in a deer team, parachuted toward the end of the Second World War in Vietnam. 
the one guy they met who did have a very good idea of democracy, and he quoted Thomas Jefferson, and he was patterning his own manifesto after the Declaration of Independence, and he was a young firebrand they were fighting alongside for a few weeks, and his name was Ho Chi Minh. Right. And so this right. dear team came back and recommended, I think we can work with this guy. He mostly just wants the French out. Uh, he, he talks about communism, but he also wants to model things on our system. We should probably work with him. And the State Department, appalled, basically said, no, we're supporting the French. And that was the end of that. So who knows where things might have gone in Vietnam had they said, yeah, we'll support your anti-colonial movement. But uh, it's, it's just another miscalculation. But Kathleen, I want to ask you, I want to go back to your book. And I want to ask you about, because uh, as I was getting toward the end, I got the feeling we're going to see more of Melvina. And uh, I got the feeling we might see her next in Kazakhstan. <laughs> good guess. That's a very yeah. good guess. I, I would love to, I left the book open, yeah. you know, probably for a sequel. And I would love to, uh, <clears throat> to write a sequel set in Kazakhstan the following year. Um, Kazakhstan still provides 15% of the world's uranium. Yeah. And um, so the potential for a whole new set of villains and a whole new set of dangers is would would be right for for that. Um, the the president the president of Kazakhstan for the last 30 years Norsultan Nazarbayev was actually probably the most proactive in ridding his country of of nuclear weapons and embracing Western, you know, Western technology. But again, that year, 1991, the following year, um, there was still a lot of intrigue going on. We ended up in Kazakhstan because Tehran petitioned Almaty, which was the capital of Kazakhstan at that time, to open an embassy, but not yeah. in Almaty, north of Almaty, not far from one of the uranium pits. Yeah. yeah. So. So, you know, there was still a lot of intrigue. So I thought, you know, I, I think Melvina has some more adventures too. Yeah, yeah. It would be good to read about them. So so we need to call Patrick into this conversation to see if he has questions or been, questions from I've the been, audience. So Patrick, over yeah, to you. Yeah, well, I just wanted to circle back on a couple of things that you had said earlier. And also um, you mentioned sort of the, uh, the collective effect on this generation uh, that survived, you know, the ones that did survive uh, World War II. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if I have a question really, but I, that's intriguing, this idea of, of, of a generation. I'm thinking of the American Civil War too, you know, when you have these just unbelievable, you know, casualties, you know, how does that generation sort of, uh, you know, um, absorb that sort of psychic trauma, you know, uh, the effect of it going forward. Any thoughts well, on think, um, Dan, I'd love for you to talk uh, more about your main character, Emil Grimm, because he came yeah. up the ranks of, of Stasi. And what, what in your mind was his experience in the Second World War? Yeah, he was pretty young. He was probably about 12 by the time the war ended, or if he'd been a couple of years older, he probably would have had a gun put in his hand for the final defense of the city because they had some 14-year-olds doing that. Right. But uh, he was mostly, you know, surviving in basements during air raids, and they would tunnel between the houses and whatnot in case the house above collapsed or burned. Um, so uh, what was interesting was his his detachment or what he found fascinating, Emil found fascinating, was this guy's about 10 to 15 years older, like Marcus Wolf, who mm -hmm. were committed communists before the Nazis took over. And some of them, basically some of the communist families went and spent the war in Moscow right. and learned to speak fluent Russian. And so they came back and, and it was strange in Berlin because for Berlin, all of Berlin, all of the women in Berlin, the, the percentage of women in Berlin who were raped by Russian soldiers at the yeah. end of the war when they were occupied was so mind boggling high that it's amazing that Russia was able to actually instill any kind of loyalty to the communist system largely because of you know what they had unleashed on the population there. And the only way they were able to do it was guys like Marcus Wolf, these German communists who had ridden out the war in Moscow 
came back, established the seeds of a new government in East Germany and the seeds of a new security service modeled on the KGB model, the sword and the shield. Uh, they even had the same slogan. So Emil's experience, I think, was more probably of mistrusting the Russians implicitly, but realizing these are the people we're working with, and I will trust them because I trust my boss, Marcus Wolf, and these other right. people who brought us right. up from scratch. So, right. Yeah. I, I love also, you know, you had a young uh, CIA agent, Claire, yeah. uh, who's partnered with uh, Clark Balcom, the old guard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he kind of reminded me of a Michael Gambone character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A, a shabby dignity to him. And I just, uh, I just really, I love the way you captured the, the disarray, uh, the disintegration of, you know, of a society and, and people who were very loyal to that, to the Stasi or the yeah. KGB now are left to fend for themselves. And do they go West? Do they go East? You know, where, yeah. where are they going to go? So that was, that was really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what is interesting in, in both these books is that uh, whether it's uh, nuclear secrets or whether it's, you know, identities of spies, uh, secrets have their own half-life. I mean, whether it's, you know, <laughs> It's almost like they're radioactive, too. And so what was suddenly up for grabs in a lot of these places, whether the KGB local branch was questioning its own loyalty to Moscow, or whether, say, in the case of Berlin, where suddenly uh, all of these Stasi guys were out of a job and looking to land safely, all of these secrets suddenly still had a half-life, and they had a value, and some people wanted to cash in on them while they still had this half-life before they kind of, you know, turned to lead. But uh Exactly. It's fascinating stuff when you look at the secrets of spies. They might suddenly seem irrelevant, but they're still going to be valuable to, to a lot of people. Right. You know, Dan, that uh, I just wrote that down. Secrets have their own half-life. Yeah, that's don't steal that line because that's a whole, I just that has an opening line. I just used it in something I'm writing the other day. So <laughs> that's good. <laughs> Kathleen, that's can good. I ask you just one quick question? One of the things about uh, that was so fascinating about about Mel's, you know, uh, her talents her, as a super recognizer was that at the end of the day, she had to go through this process almost of detoxing, mm -hmm. you know, all the faces that she saw during the day. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that was, uh, that was for dramatic effect. I, I've, <laughs> I've been in contact with Kelly Hersey, the, the super recognizer, oh. and her law and her at one time boss, Mike Neville, who's a, a detective chief inspector of Scotland Yard. And they both laughed when they, when I told them about this ritual, because she said, I never get headaches and I don't have, <laughs> to, you know, I don't have to do any kind of deprogramming. It, I just, I put that in there as a flight of fancy to add some tension to, to, to kind of make this this her attributes, her talent, a little bit dangerous, a little yeah. bit dangerous to, to herself, uh, that she had to to go through this ritual to to diffuse sort of the, the tension, the neuronal tension. But it but you know I, I made it up so that it would uh, if she wasn't able to do the ritual, it would have disastrous consequences for her. Yeah, yeah. And it certainly raised the stakes when she was under interrogation and in detention in places like that. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, let's see. So some of the questions that have come in, uh, Bruce would like to know, uh, let's see, Kathleen, given that you knew the Soviet Union at its end and you've seen Russia now, which do you see as being more dangerous? Uh, well, I, you know, the, there was a lot of trepidation because of all of the all of the weapons of mass destruction that were sort of laying around, um, but there was a sense that because because the Americans were there on the ground, and the and Western Europeans, um, we we kind of knew more of what was going on. Although Russia uh, was not completely honest, was never completely honest in the way that they uh, were going to destroy biochemical weapons. Um, or uh, you know, or nuclear weapons. They they fudged a lot, and and we kind of knew that, but we still had entree. 
you know, we don't really know what Putin's up to. We, we know that he's not doing very well in Ukraine, you know, that his, his forces are in disarray. Uh, but I don't, I don't know, you know, there's still the open question of, is he willing to use limited nuclear strikes? I don't know. It feels, it feels more dangerous now, but only because I'm not there. Maybe, you know, maybe being there gave me the false sense of, of security that we were actually getting something done. It's amazing. It's been a whole year today. Yeah. yeah. I know. Wow. I know. Yeah. And he's yep. effectively destroying, just like World War I destroyed a generation of young British men, he's basically destroying a whole generation of men for no purpose. And, you know, that's going to have very long-term consequences for Russia. It's, it's, I think he can't afford to lose at this point because of the damage that he's done. The deaths that he's caused, the economic damage, he's driven out Western business, whatever. Um, I, I, I don't think he can turn back. But well, also, yeah, a lot of young, bright young men are leaving the country, too, because too. they There's fear that there may be yeah. more conscription and they're voting with their feet. I mean, they are getting out in droves. There's a huge brain drain, which is, yeah, is. kind of analogous to what happened in China with the, you know, the cultural revolution is that China lost a lot of its, you know, superior yeah. brain power and all over that policy. But I think Putin's basically backed himself into a place where he, he really can't get out of it. Anybody who thinks there could be a negotiated peace, I think is no. delusional. Um, no. It's interesting you mentioned brain drain because wasn't, uh, Kathleen, maybe you know this, there was also some concern in 90 about Soviet nuclear talent. The scientists, uh, possibly going elsewhere to the highest bidder, uh, like you already had the Scottish guy. What was his name? Uh, you mentioned him in the book, uh, not Scottish, but the, the Canadian. Canadian, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that was, um, uh, you know, one of the disturbing and, and really sad aspects of, of being in, in Belarus uh, in the early 1990s is that when we would go to visit the, uh, you know, the institutes, the academic institutes, there would be lines of scientists, all different types of, you know, chemical engineers and nuclear scientists waiting in a line outside of the door where we were to offer to sell their technology yeah. in lieu of payment the soviet union because everything that all the work that they did was owned by the state so yeah. what so what they said in compromise the soviet system said well you can own what you've worked on but we just can't pay you but yeah. they were desperate to sell they said we'll we'll give this to you for however much money um yeah. and you can own it yeah uh, and and that was that was very disturbing that and we had to keep yeah. an eye on because there was a big brain drain yeah. um, when the Soviet Union came, came apart. And the Nunn-Lugar program not only paid for decommissioning weapons, but it paid for housing and medical supplies for the military and for their top scientists, because yeah. we realized that if we didn't give them a way to survive, a way to live, yeah. they were gonna go to the next highest bidder. Right, exactly. You know? yeah. So, yeah. Anything else, Patrick? Um, let's see. Well, what are you both working on now? What What are your next projects? Go ahead, Kathleen. Oh, thanks, Dan. Um, so uh, I, I'm kind of I'm working simultaneously on two projects to see which one will get the go ahead. Uh, one is a sequel set in Kazakhstan, and the other is a standalone book uh, set in New York City in 1977, the summer of 1977, the big blackout. Um, and it's kind of, it's kind of in the line of Dan Simmons. It's, it's again, a big pivot for me. It's something I haven't done before because it sort of verges on the supernatural. It involves Nikola Tesla and his particle beam weapon. And um, so it's just, it's sort of a fanciful, it's a dark fairy tale. And uh, so I'm just developing it to see where it goes. So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm working on both and I'm gonna present both to the publisher pretty soon. And then we'll see. Is Betty on ice for the moment? Is what? Betty kind of on, on oh, hold for a yeah. moment. Yes, you know, I would love to, I'd love to write more Betty Rizik 
uh, crime series. But, it, you know, I just felt that, and the publisher felt it was time to be, he, they were very excited about the spy novel. And so I'd love to go back to it, but I sort of had to, I sort of made the change to, to move forward. Right. How about you, Dan? Uh, I'm working on a spy novel set, uh, pretty much contemporary, but it's uh, set in a fictional Eastern European country, which is somewhat like Hungary, but uh, is not. And it involves a discredited, uh, somewhat canceled American comedian uh, who had become a congressman who lost both those jobs because of really screwing up uh, publicly. <laughs> and uh, oh, but he happens to, his work, his very kind of crude comedy, uh, one of his biggest fans happens to be the premier of this Eastern European country who invites him over there on social media, which this guy misses because he's disengaged from all that. So the CIA basically decides to capitalize by uh, basically getting him to take this invitation to try to get him into this fellow's inner circle. So there will be some comic elements in this book. Oh, good. But uh, it will basically be, and it will lead into darker places that neither side had any intention for it to go because they will discover that a lot of U.S. politicians of a certain ilk also are big fans of this leader of this Eastern European country. And this guy starts to discover things which maybe the CIA isn't, isn't sure it even wants to handle. So uh, it gets quite complicated. Um, and anyway, that's, that's where I am with that book. I'm so disappointed I won't get to go to Budapest then with you. <laughs> One of my favorite cities. There's nothing else just to eat there. I love it. Well, you can go to this, uh, you can go to this city. The capital city is Blatsk and it's in okay. the, it's in the country of Bolrovia. So anyway. Is there a great river running through it? There is, there is. Well, then it'll all work out. Is that it, Patrick? Did you have anything else of your own? No, I think that's about it. Wonderful. Well, thank yeah. you both very much. What fun this has been. I think we have maybe four copies left, signed copies. We obviously have an infinity number of unsigned copies of Black Wolf, but <laughs> very small. And as Patrick already mentioned to you, we're down to three copies of Winterwork because we had a lot of them back one day. But when was it that we published? Oh, uh, July. Okay. July was so we, we try to hold on to our signed books forever. Um, so... Anyway, here we are. Um, thank you again, Barbara. Thank you, Patrick. And thank, thank you, you, Kathleen. Thank you, Barbara, as always. And Patrick, I, I love Poison Pen. And I'm so grateful that you invited uh, Dan and I to, to yeah. talk this evening well, about it was, our it was our pleasure. You are indeed two of our favorite authors. So thank you so much. Good night, everybody. Enjoy the rest of the night. Good night. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.